one of the real success ingredients is getting to this stage where healthy conflict uh, is not tolerated but encouraged. In other words, it's okay to challenge the boss and the boss can challenge the team. And it has to be a two-way process. And if you do that, you end up with a high-performance team. G'day and welcome back to the Coast and Commerce podcast. I'm Ben Amos from Innovate Media and on this podcast it's all about bringing stories, insight and inspiration from business leaders across the Sunshine Coast and Queensland and beyond and one of those inspiring business leaders that I've got for you here today is Alan Keogh from Keogh Consulting. Hey Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks Ben for ha- having me here. Yeah. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. So we've known each other for a number of years and I've always been inspired by your way of communicating ideas. So I'm really interested to see where we go with this and hopefully there will be some interesting ideas that are uh, prompted for our, our viewers and our, our listeners of the show here. But for people that haven't come across you mm. or Keo Consulting before, yeah. tell me who are you? What's your story? Well, uh, we started in 1984, um, mainly working in organisational development, change, team leadership, development, training and development um, in Brisbane. Um, and the business is 40 years old next year. Mm. Yeah. Well, I just turned 43. So oh, my God. <laughs> you've been going for a while. A little while, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So tell me, like, um, you know, what are, what are some of the kind of highlights of businesses that you've worked with over the – not many businesses over those years, right? Yeah. But give us just a little story about some of those businesses. Yeah, well, interesting enough, I, I hope you're going to ask me a bit about failure as well because one of the things that's taught me a lot in the early part of my career was the succession, interesting enough, of things that didn't work. And I didn't realise until later on when I started my own business how valuable they were going to be. Um, but uh, the, the work we've done, I think, is we fight above our weight. Uh, we're really excited about the fact that we were the innovators and designers and developers of what was Bond University with working mm-hmm. with Alan Bond, which was a challenge, but that's another story. Uh, Expo 88, we're the official trainer for Expo 88 um, and we've helped establish a series of companies from scratch obviously with the entrepreneurs and help them go global um, and one of the most prominent of those is a company called Energy Developments that developed their business based on extracting methane gas from rubbish dumps. Okay. Yeah, uh, and then uh, having a turbine unit that generated power, money for jam. And then detoxified the rubbish dumps as well as uh, reducing uh, CO2 uh, emissions way ahead of its time. And that business went global. Listed at 90 cents, went to $14.30. Great success story. And then more recently, the PNG LNG project up in Papua New Guinea, mm. $19.4 billion project that finished 11 weeks early and on budget. So that's pretty good for a major project. Mm. So your role as, as consultants when you come into those organisations, yeah. like what are, you, what are you helping them achieve? Well, firstly, we're helping them identify and develop a very compelling and uh, vision for the future, bring that to life as much as possible. And you mentioned before, I mean, as you probably know, I can't think much of it unless I draw. So we normally uh, give a put together a storyboard picture of that mm. uh, and then do a, a rigorous audit of where they currently are and then look at the bridge between where they are to where they want to be and develop a strategy to help make that happen. So that whole business we call transformation. Uh, and we do that for organisations that are in diabolical mess as well as organisations in great shape and ones that start from scratch. So, yeah. yeah. And are there particular things you're, you're looking for or, I guess, frameworks that you implement into these organisations regardless of the size that mm. are pretty consistent 
regardless of the the industry? Yeah, there's a there is definitely a formula we follow, but every every strategy we develop is unique to that organisation. Has to be. I think one of the downsides in consultancy is this idea you pull something off the shelf. And that's the th- the same approach or formula used for every company. I think that's yeah. that's really flawed. Uh, having said that, there is a methodology that we follow that consistently works. Mm. So before we get into some of, some of that, um, hopefully stuff that people watching can take away for their mm. own business, whether they're you know large oil and gas companies or a small mum and pop shop on the Sunshine Coast, I'm sure there's some value they'll get. But I'm, in, I'm going to throw a question at you that we weren't prepared for, Alan, because <laughs> I'm interested, right? Like what, what is it about what you do that got you into what you do? Like why organisational leadership and change and, and, and consulting in, in this space? Well, I think I mentioned failure before. <clears throat> yeah. And I'll tell you a bit about that. <clears throat> Early on in my career, I was working for a shoe company, a very proud company, 150-year-old company. Mm. And uh, it was a company that, uh, was pretty much set in its ways and wasn't open to thinking about markets external to Australia. Uh, in a situation, in a condition when tariffs were reduced and, and competition increased exponentially. So the thing I learned from that was the importance of looking outside your own boundaries, looking outside your own patch and thinking about what you do vertically or horizontally integrating your business rather than just stick to one particular product line. The second experience I had was working with the Building Society um, and it, it, it grew too fast, too soon, too quickly and basically outstretched itself and lost its ability to do what it originally did very well. And so that was a great lesson as well from, from that experience. Um, and then joining the Australian Institute of Management uh, gave me an insight into how to structure and put together leadership programs right from the grassroots level to executive uh, leaders. And <clears throat> I always felt there was a better way. So what I didn't realise what was happening was I was learning great lessons in what to and what not to do really well, mm. as well as what does work. And so those early days then led to when we first kicked off, focusing on doing leadership development in such a way that it really engaged with people, <coughs> and it actually connected to the heart and the spirit, uh, and the emotional aspects of being an effective leader. And in particular, I encourage people to be vulnerable and courage, courageous. Mm. Awesome. So when you when you come into organisations, yeah. and obviously you know you're coming in often you know, cold into cold, an organisation. Yeah, so you know what are you what are you looking for? Like what are some some signals or some some common things that you're kind of looking for in that initial phase to kind of work out where is this organisation at, and what do they need from you to get to where they need to be? Does that make sense? It, it certainly does. Um, Initially, we're looking for, does the client really understand the challenge that they have? And sometimes they don't, and that's the reason they're engaging us, to help them get clarity about where they want to be and where they are. Um, a classic example there was doing some work for Carlton and I Breweries on having a massive turnover in staff and started with the premise that it's not possible to sort of turn that around. So one of the things that certainly stretches and challenges me when someone says that it's impossible, it can't be done, um, you've You're got me and I'm hooked, yeah. unfortunately. But I'm not sure I answered your question properly then. But Well, I mean, like I, many, many listeners or viewers of this show are probably at the smaller, mm. small, medium businesses, right? Yeah. And they may be the founders or they may be the owners of the company or, or managers of the company or just employees of the company. Yeah. But I guess, you know, if, if you could identify some common things that you see in organisations that, um, you know, maybe uh, indicators that, that there is – room for improvement what are, what are you looking for 
Well, I guess the first thing is is uh, how is the organisation structured? Yeah. Uh, who's in charge? The lead, the quality of the leadership is absolutely critical. Is there succession in place, particularly for a small small business or a family type business? Uh, what's the backup plan if one of the key the key um, rainmaker um, falls to one side or retires or decides to sell their business? Um, the other is the the about the the significance and importance of what they do, the the value that that's current, but also is their potential to leverage what they currently do, expand their business, and do they have the capacity to reach scale? Mm. We're working with a number of small businesses at the moment. I'm talking about that, and I'm talking small meaning with uh, maximum sort of twenty people, mm. um, and one of them is in the healthcare sector. It has a fantastic concept. Their challenge is to reach scale. And so they, they do what they do, they really, really well, but their challenge is to expand their business exponentially. Hmm. You've shared with me before, Alan, the idea of you, you've got this system of like colour-coding businesses, <laughs> yeah. right? And, so, yeah. and there's, there's green and there's red and, and I think blue. Blue, that's right. So can you share with us, um, you know, how or like what is, what is this colour code mm. and how, how do organisations kind of work out where they fit within this this idea? Well, I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember how we sort of come up with the idea, but it's just a convenient way of explaining to clients what we do. And so, yes, the red organisations will be organisations that are in strife. They're, if they don't fundamentally adjust and modify what they're currently doing, they're potentially going to go terminal mm. um, and they're in trauma. So the second, and I'll give you some examples if you like, in, in the green organisations, they're the startups. They're the one and two people back of a shared great idea, great concept or a single entrepreneur and um, they want to take their concept and build it into a business. Uh, and the blue organisations are mature, well-established, perhaps even household names. Most of the ones we work with tend to be medium to large-sized corporations who realise they want to rejuvenate their brand or rejuvenate their business and take it to the next level. Awesome. So I want to unpack this a little bit yeah. further, Alan. So let's start with the green organisations, the okay. startups, right? Yeah. The, the founder, great idea, you know, needs some work though, right? Yeah. Um, can you give me some examples of those that you've worked with at that green level? And particularly, you know, what are the common things that you see at that green level and what do they tend to need? to get to where they need to go. Yeah, look, I gave you one before, which was energy developments uh, is, is one of the examples. The other one was Bond University and the larger scale one, but it's still relevant, is a PNG LNG as a project. But So the, the, each case, what we're looking for there is, again, uh, the, the, the concept, is it is it sound, is it solid, do they have the, the working capital to grow their business, to sustain their business, is there leadership depth, um, have they got capacity to generate work? Often they have a great idea, but they don't know how to actually commercialise what they do. So we help pull, pull together a strategy working with them. We never do it to them. We always do it with them to develop a strategy to help st uh, stage and bench their progress from where they are to where they want to be. Mm. Normally for a startup, it's a two-year type horizon to get them up and running and then from then on five-year type horizon after that. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So, and then that blue stage. So, tell me about an example of the blue and what's the common mm. situations you find there? Yeah, well, blue one's a bit different because it, first it starts with the realization by the executive, normally the CEO and sometimes the board, that it is time for the business to take its next quantum shift in how it functions and operates. So, for instance, one of the ones we work with very successfully from 2012 to 2022 is Woodside, mm. large public company. In fact, now today is one of the one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world. 
And the mandate from Peter Coleman, who was the CEO at the time, was to help rejuvenate the business and take it to the next level, in particular to do that via changing the culture and the way the business operated and functioned. Um, there's not much we can teach that organisation about how to run an oil and gas business per se, but, but but our mandate was to help change the way people behaved, the way they operated, the way they functioned, to make a difference uh, in the world. Yeah. How important at that level, mm. that, that blue level, is that outside consultancy, having that outsider company come in and look at the, cu- the company, the culture, what's going yep. on from the outside. I think you've just hit on a really important point. Um, it, uh, getting external consultants is not always the answer. Mm. And we've seen the recent press examples of, um, unfortunately, poor behaviour by external consultants. But I think we really come into our own, we can apply, apply, uh, give that objective, independent perspective. <clears throat> and also uh, give provide the client with truth uh, a truth that they want to hear. I love what Emerson said about uh, tell the truth like cannonballs from the heart. So it needs to be focused and to the point but compassionate and sensitive to the needs of the organisation but bold and brave. They want to hear the, uh, hear the truth of their situation. They want to actually uh, be challenged about the way they do things. Uh, so I think that's the important thing. One of the traps that consultants can fall into is telling the client what they want to hear. Mm. Let's talk about red organisations. So they're probably not fun to talk about, right? Oh, no, no. In fact, I get excited about them. Interesting enough, as it turns out, most of the ones we work with in the health sector. So the the irony of this is this is health organisations that are unhealthy and they're in dis-ease, they're in disequilibrium, therefore they're unhealthy. And Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's the same story. One of the most successful ones is Western Health in Victoria. Uh, Ralph Willis was the incoming chair, ex-federal treasurer. Uh, new CEO, Kath Cook, fabulous lady, um, and new CEO, new board, a realisation that Western Health on the Western side of Melbourne, of course, uh, where lots of patients present late. So it's a it's a mecca for education for tertiary students who are learning medicine or nursing and other peripheral services. Um, <clears throat> but in that particular case, they they realised that they had one of the worst records in Australia in terms of ramping and throughput for patients and other indicators of poor performance. But they were brave enough to realise that they want to turn this around for the people of that district and they deserved it. And to their credit, uh, they have the, they had the ticker and the courage to make tough decisions to improve the overall health of the organisation and term the health of the community. Great success story. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with those red organisations, mm. you know, for Keo Consulting coming in there, like yeah. what, are, what are some of the key things that you're, you're looking to do to turn that company around? Well, one, one of the key areas, in, and in, in particular in that organisation, was getting the, the senior clinicians on board. So there's always a cohort, there's always a group in each of these organisations that are absolutely mandatory to get on side. If you don't get them on side, it's tough uh, to bring about the change that's necessary. So it's, it's identifying key change agents, it's, it's growing and developing champions for change, it's educating and training the executive leadership team, the senior leaders to actually behave and operate in a different way because um, they have to lead by example uh, and they have to demonstrate a real commitment to bring about change and it needs to start with the senior leaders first. So I think that's one of the key ingredients. And then... It's progressive, prog- pro- progressive change and, and victories along the way and they're celebrated and reinforced with the entire workforce. And in particular, 
uh, celebrated with the customer in this particular location, patients, of course, and families that uh, support those uh, patients as well. So much of what you you do in in leadership consultancy and, and organizational change and strategy development mm. is about people, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all about people. It is. And often, like as you've just mentioned, there in those turnaround, those red companies, it's about getting the right people on board. Spot on. Yep. How difficult is that? <laughs> Very. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens if you can't get them on board? Do you just oh. start cutting heads? Well. Mm. I'm not sure you you can go to air on some of these things, but um, let's not talk about specific businesses. All right, yeah. okay. Um, look, it's I call it the onboarding process. I, I have a visual image, by the way, of a of a, a yacht, if you will, <clears throat> uh, a gangplank. Um, the CEO is standing on the yacht and is inviting each member of his or her team to come on board and walk the plank. And the question as they come on board is, "Are you willing to come with me on the journey?" Are you willing to do what needs to be done to make it happen? So I think it's terribly important that there's an invitation. It's a legitimate invitation to be part of the future. and to. But there's an expectation that they step up, in this case step onto the plank and step on board the ship, and this is the direction it's going in. And it's critical that once they come on board, it's the direction that's determined by that senior executive team and not just by the captain. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, that's important. I like that. There's a choice. Right? Yeah, that, in, in well, that it has to be choice. And that's really the point. I think I've got a couple of examples in mind which have been appropriate to talk about. But I recall having uh, being actively involved in two situations where the CEO went through this invitation process. And initially, everyone came on board. But once they got on board, we, we had a conversation. And again, the language would be a workshop to explore what it all meant. At the end of that workshop, the the procedure was the CEO would again ask uh, privately now one-on-one, are you up for the journey? And uh, there, I, there were seven people I've got in mind. Two said no, and that's great. That's a good outcome. That's not a bad outcome. Mm. The fact that someone chooses to go in a different direction is what should happen, and let's not make them wrong for that. That's that's them making self-determined choices, which is the way it should be. Right. Well, to carry on your boat metaphor, you get the wrong people on the boat leads to mutiny, right? Well, well, eventually does, and of course that comes back to the character of the captain too, and that's terribly important. One of the real success ingredients is getting to this stage where healthy conflict uh, is not tolerated but encouraged. In other words, it's okay to challenge the boss and the boss can challenge the team, and it has to be a two-way process. And if you do that, you end up with a high-performance team, but that's one of the toughest things to help bring about. And you asked about time. Uh, the longest time I've taken with any client so far is four years to get the team right. Mm, okay. um, and sometimes, it's we mentioned before about letting people go, it's not always appropriate to fire someone just because they don't fit initially. It could well be they deserve some time and effort to come on board and to um, upskill and to have a mindset shift that, that causes them to say, you know what, I really do want to be part of this and I want to make it a difference. Yeah, yeah. cool. I like it. Thanks for that. So, you know, before we move on to some some practical stuff, I want to dive into with you. I have to mention that you you are also recently taken on a role as part of the strategy for the twenty thirty two Olympics, <laughs> particularly the Sunshine Coast's role within that. That's right. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about about that? And I'd love to find out if you see them as green, red, or blue. <laughs> Oh, no, we're definitely green <laughs> from that point of view because it's uh, – Ros White is our chair and uh, Ros is well known to people in the Sunshine Coast in terms of her role running the White stores, the IGA stores. She's a fabulous CEO and a great champion 
for people on the Sunshine Coast, and we're all about connecting and uniting uh, and and uh, embracing uh, people to make the most they can of the Sunshine Coast 2032 uh, Olympic and Paralympic experience. And by the way, you know, Paris is next year, 2024. Uh, LA is not too far away. You'll we'll find that 2032 is going to come fast. So uh, there's a lot of folk on, on the coast who have volunteered or part of six different teams to help bring all this together. We have no formal mandate. Uh, we're an all-voluntary group, but we have a close affinity to what's happening in Brisbane, of course, and we want to see the Games be a great success for the coast. And what I'm really proud of is that the strategy that has been developed, it's not been developed by me, it's been developed by our, our leadership team who are outstanding, um, and Duncan Armstrong is our deputy chair. We've got 88 uh, Olympians and Paralympians here on the coast who are active in helping make all this happen, but equally to business leaders as well, including the different chambers uh, here on the coast. So pretty exciting stuff. Watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it's a great example of, you know, when strategic planning as a collaborative experience mm. is so critical, right? Yeah. I think in organisations there is often a a CEO, a founder, a leader, yeah. an owner of the company. So it feels like the strategy should come from the top down, yeah. Yeah. whereas there's not in a, in a voluntary-based committee like the Sunshine Coast 2032, right, there is no leader. So, you know, you, it has to be that collaborative voice. Yeah. yeah, and it has been. I mean, we ran two workshops last year. The first one was uh, called Synergy, and it was all about how are we going to synergize, how are we going to collaborate, cooperate ourselves to work on work on this, and of course, the centerpiece of that was developing an appropriate, collaborative, and inclusive culture. And the second workshop was more tasky, focused on the specific things we need to do from a strategy point of view. But all of that was built by the board that Ros has formed, and also the volunteer leaders from each of the teams that uh, have been formed. So, you know, there's there's a lot of sticky fingers, as I call it, that are all over the document that's been produced that was officially launched in September of this year at uh, Sunshine Coast University. Yeah, awesome. Mm. So just before we move on from the, the Sunshine Coast or the Olympics in 2032, I'd love to just hear from you, Alan, personally. What's what's your hope or vision or dream for, for the Sunshine Coast or the South East Queensland hosting the Olympics? Like, what do you hope that it brings to the Sunshine Coast? Well... I'm a resident of the Sunshine Coast <clears throat> um, and there's a bit of a backstory here, but mum and dad bought a block of land in Coolum for £100 <laughs> when I was nine years old. I mean, think about that now, in Banksia Avenue, Coolum. And so I've been backwards and forwards from the coast many years and I've got the skin cancers to prove it. I learnt to swim at the at Cod Hole at Cotton Tree at the age of nine, taught by the Surf Life Saving Club. So I've, and I've, I've been a resident. Uh, in full time up here on the coast since 2012 so my first aspiration is is for the youth of the sunshine coast to get actively involved in preparing for the games and that's it just prepare for the games let alone participate in the games the second uh, aspiration or dream i would have is that people on the sunshine coast uh, volunteer and get involved uh, min swan's the head of our uh, volunteering and community group fantastic local citizen who does an amazing job and uh, if people want to volunteer, I mean, please reach out to us. <clears throat> I think the third uh, um, our bold aspiration would be that everyone on the coast benefits uh, from a business and tourism point of view. I mean, equally true, the counter-argument to that is we all love the coast. We don't like it to see it be, be spoilt. 
But rather than that, let's, let's showcase what we've got to offer here. And it's not just about the coastal strip either. It's about the hinterland and people engaging with the fabulous produce that we produce here, the wonderful beaches that we have. Let's make what we know to be a special part of paradise known to the world. Mm. So it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, for everyone on the coast. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. And yeah. you know, looking forward to seeing where where the strategy takes takes yeah. uh, Sunshine Coast in that time as well. So I want to get down into picking your brain, you know, the years that you've had of experience working in a range of organisations, a range of industries, mm. you know, getting insight into how these organisations run and what, what makes them a success and what makes them fall down and trip yeah. over. Yeah. What would you say are the, are the keys to success for an organisation, whether they be from small to large enterprise? Well, Margate Mansfield, our CEO and myself, uh, produced a paper on this. We identified 10 key elements, but I'll just pick a couple out that I think make for sustainable success <clears throat> in business. And I mentioned a couple already, but the first one is a compelling vision for the future that's brought to life, not just words on a page, but uh, a visual representation of what you'd like the future to look like. It needs to be compelling, magnetic, attractive, bold, and slightly sort of almost non-achievable. It's a bit, it's elusive, but something you really want to aspire to, to move in that direction. Is that like that big, hairy, audacious goal yeah, thing? That I mean, hear? I think you need to set then big, hairy, audacious goals in sync with that, um, yeah. with that um, vision. The second thing is uh, your code of conduct, a way of working, I think, developing um, the effective culture. Culture by design, not by default. In other words, you purpose build the way you want people to function and work. Uh, and I mentioned that right up front because I think that puts in place the appropriate architecture that gives uh, liberation to shape, form and, and style that encourages people to step outside of their capacity and, and unwrap, as I call it, their own packages of brilliance. I think the third thing is, again, really inspirational and courageous leadership, uh, humble leadership as well, and vulnerable too. So it's human. I think one of the things I learned earlier on back in the beginning of my career was uh, the importance of, of vulnerability. So I mentioned Dixon Shoes before. One of the saddest days but one of the proudest days was us telling the organisation that 90% of them were about to become redundant in terms of their jobs. And, but people had such affinity and, and love for the organisation itself that the honest, raw truth about that, you thought it was a sad day. It was a great day in many ways because people were celebrating the great history of that organisation. By the way, we found 90, 95% of the people that were redundant, we actually had them walk out of that into a brand new job. That was part of our termination process was to guarantee people would have a new job after they That's were great. terminated, by the way. Uh, we won a major award for that, but that's another story. Interesting. Yeah. Win an award for terminating people. I know. But terminating um, them in the right way. And by that was a partnership formed with the unions as well, as well as um, the Commonwealth Employment Service at the time. So the companies, CES and the unions were all collaborated to help make that happen. It wasn't just me or us. Yeah. I think the fourth thing is, I mentioned it before, is getting the right team together. You know, the really able, capable people who can lead can interpret the strategy, develop that strategy and implement it well. And then I think if I had to pick one other thing, it would be a, a staged um, implementation plan, fit for purpose, sensitive to the needs of the people, um, timely, 
well thought through with progressive review points along the way and review points also opportunities to celebrate progress. I think celebration is underrated. I think it's important that we actually acknowledge the contributions that people make along the way. Just a simple thank you too is so powerful um, to an individual but also to the organisation for where the organisation is at as well as the honest truth about things. some things aren't working. Let's have honest conversation about that. Follow that very quickly with what are we going to do about it and then take action to make things work. I love that all five of those, and I know I recognise they're just five of the ten that you have there, but all five of them, I believe, are things that, you know, can be implemented in an organisation, whether you've got a a team of two or three up to 200 or 300 or maybe beyond. 3,000. 3,000, right? So, um, you know, I love that. I I think that that idea of of culture by design, of like Mm. having authentic and vulnerable and, and strong leadership, of having the right team and having a a clear vision of where you're going and, and having the path laid out so that people know the journey that they're on. All of those things are, are critical to success. Yeah, sure. So right. that's success, right? Mm. What about failure? You know, what are the common things that lead to failure? Is it just not doing those things? It's not just the opposite. I mean, I've got some exa- examples in, in mind and it's probably inappropriate to mention some of the companies, but one in particular is is being in denial. In other words, uh, you're engaged to work with a client to help develop a future, uh, design a future, great. Um, then we have a conversation about how things are and then that conversation, and normally we make that a fairly rigorous process to identify what shape the organisation is in and it's when that, that information is shared with the executive team uh, there can be very defensive behaviour around that and, and one of those is being a complete denial excuse me, of the truth, if you will. Mm. And so if that happens and if there isn't a sufficient um, courage to own what actually has happened without getting into blame, it's not about blame, it's just about owning up to the fact, yeah, things haven't worked, okay, let's turn it around. So that would be one of the key uh, trip points. I think the other one is, and I got a a note the other day from a CEO I've been working with in Sydney, um, he was telling me that uh, some work we did initially to get the team onboarding process has fallen apart a bit. I think the second thing is momentum. You've got it's a bit like going to the gym once and assuming you're going to get fit. I think you've got to maintain momentum to sustain people along the journey uh, to help equip them with new skills, new competencies, new capacity to honestly have conversations about what's working and what's not and make corrections. So I think momentum. Uh, is a key another key element that can get forgotten and that's suicidal again you think you want to get fit you go to the gym once well it's not going to work yeah um and i suppose if there was a third thing the third thing is a poorly thought through plan and poorly executed so not having an effective plan well thought through and not resourcing it either in such a way that you Overpromise and underdeliver, or you overextend the organisation's capacity to do what needs to be done. Another way of saying that is sometimes doing two things too fast, too soon, too quickly. So, in the zeal to sort of make real progress, you take on too much. Mm. So, you know, I love the Pareto principle there, you know, the 80 20 rule, yeah. which is do one or two things will have the biggest impact. Um, so, I think that's the other flaw. And sometimes that's just out of sheer enthusiasm because everyone's so excited. And you just try and do too much. So does yeah. that help then? Yeah. yeah, I love yeah. it. Definitely. Mm. And I'm sure it resonates with some people listening and watching today. Yeah. Whether you've made those mistakes yourself, some of them I have. Yeah, um, I, or, I have. Or whether it is just identifying those potential mistakes and roadblocks yeah. that can get in your way of the success you want for your business. 
Just in closing here, Alan, I'd, I'd love for you, you mentioned 40 years in business. Yeah. If you were to say one thing to yourself 40 years ago in the early days of starting your business, what would you say to, to kind of hit you on the road to success? I mean, you've been there, you've got success, you, you've had a successful business for 40 years, but I'd love to know like now, 40 years later, what do you wish you knew? What do you wish you told yourself? Well, one of the things I did recently was walk Kokoda. And uh, it was a pretty emotional experience. I lost nine kilos. And so sometimes when you do things like that, they are major wake-up calls. And so there are three key lessons I got from that experience that uh, answer your question, I think. The first one is I, I haven't always been good at asking others for help. Mm. And I could not have walked that Kokoda track without the, the guy who led it, Wayne Enright, did a fabulous job. And so it's it's a realisation that you can't do it on your own. So that's the, the first lesson, I think. The second one is about your state of readiness. So I also walked Kilimanjaro, um, and that's the height of Base Camp Everest. And I thought I was super fit for that. And the same thing for, Co- for Kokoda, I thought I was super fit. And I wasn't, I was underdone in both cases. In other words, physically underdone, not not prepared well enough for the journey ahead. And I think there's some major lessons from business there. Are you mm. are you prepared? Have you done the work? Are you fit? Are you able? Is the organisation able to do what you're about to do? So I think um, I've often underestimated my own capacity uh, to take on the task. Mind you, this is the other side of me. I'm a very determined individual and I re- can recall... <laughs> on Kilimanjaro saying, I'll get to the bloody top of this thing if it even if it bloody kills me. The downside to that statement is that every year someone dies on Kilimanjaro from the altitude sickness. Is, is dying. <laughs> yeah, and which is not clever. I had the great fortune of, of interviewing um, Sir Edmund Hillary when I was working at Expo 88 and asked him what was the toughest thing about Everest and he said the descent. So I think the third lesson... I've learnt is it's not so much about um, achieving the victory, it's what do you do on the other side of victory. So it's a, it's the what you do after you've won the battle. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's the it's the other side of, of success is what do you do to sustain yourself to go to the next level. Hence back to those blue organisations again, the same thing applies to me as well. What do I do? to pick myself up and take things to the next level and offer and underestimate what it takes to sustain the momentum going forward as a person, individual, a leader, a father, a husband. Yeah. yeah, I love that, Alan. I think there's a there's a lot for everyone to take from that as Thank well. You. So hopefully one day you get a chance to say that to your, <laughs> your, yourself 40 years ago, time travel. <laughs> I don't know. Who yeah. knows? Maybe by 2032, time travel. Good stuff. Alan, this has been great. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think. Reach out to Alan. Um, before we let you go, Alan, what's the best way for people if they want to connect with you further and, and learn, sure. more, lo- uh, learn well, more from you? Please Google us on our website, uh, Keogh Consulting. Uh, alternatively, uh, drop me a line, alan at keoconsulting.com.au. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Awesome, guys, and hope you've enjoyed this episode. So if you have enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe on your podcast player or subscribe on YouTube if you're watching the video version, and we'll be back with you with another inspiring business leader from the Sunshine Coast real soon. Take care. Thank you.